Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Stein. He is the host of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast, a very popular podcast. Welcome to the show, David. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's give a little bit of your background. Uh, you've been in the fund management business and done this podcast. Just give us a little bit of your history and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I was an institutional advisor for a firm called Fund Evaluation Group for about 17 years. We managed money for mostly not-for-profits, endowments, and foundations. I was our firm's chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist. So I managed about a $2 billion discretionary portfolio. Then we had roughly $30 billion of non-discretionary consulting assets. I left that six years ago this month and launched the podcast four years ago, mostly to focus on focusing on education, ed- educating individuals, investors on money, how the economy works, how investing works, and that, that's what I do. I run the podcast and I have an educational site where I provide a little more specific assistance of, to about 900 members. So what kind of uh, podcasts and what kind of subjects are people going to hear if they go to Money for the Rest of Us? Just a, a rough idea of the kind of subjects you t- talk about. We This week, for example, we're talking about the national debt and why the dollar is not going to collapse. We, we talk about you know, different investment vehicles, retirement spending. So anything related to personal finance, but also tying in big picture macroeconomic topics that I think is helpful for individuals to know. They need to know, understand how the monetary system works, how government finances works to, to be better individual investors. So some philosophy, some a lot of storytelling. I, I don't have guests. It's a very much a narrative-driven show and done weekly. And uh, yeah. So let's take a look at the kind of edu- level of financial education that the American public has. Obviously, you think it needs more for doing this podcast. But what are the implications of people not understanding the things we're going to be talking about today and all of the uh, both macro and micro things you talk about all the time? What are the implications of not being financially literate? They, they lose money. What, what I have found in, in working and educating individuals, it's, it's people come to a time in their life where they realize they want to learn more about investing. But oftentimes they, they kind of go after the whoever's screaming the loudest, which is often investments that they shouldn't be involved in at all, at least to the level that that individuals get involved in, things such as options trading, currency option trading. And currency option trading, that's that's just a terrible place to start investing if you've never invested before. And so I try to take people back to some basics, understand how, how difficult it is to actually be an active investor to try to outsmart the market. That, that's how I spent my career interviewing hedge fund managers and, and trying to pick, pick the best stock managers in the world. And it is extremely difficult to do, even for professionals, much less individuals. And so when they, when they start out deciding they want to trade binary options, for example, they, they have no idea that that, is, that is, is as close to gambling as you can get because it has a negative expected return. So those are kind of the things that we look at. So having interviewed fund managers and done this institutional money management, are you a believer in passive uh, index fund investing, or do you think that 
active managers can be found that will beat the indexes in the long run? How do you go on the active-passive uh, spectrum? I go in between. I, I think there are some areas where active management makes sense. For example, on the bond side, because the index has thousands of securities and has some structural flaws, having an active manager there can make some sense. Most asset classes, no. So most, I don't have, I think I might have one equity active manager in my portfolio, and it's, it's a micro cap growth manager, an area that doesn't have a good index. So if there's not a good passive replacement, then have, being passive or being active makes sense. Having said that, I'm not a pure buy and hold investor. I, I believe that all passive investors are active to some extent. Maybe they're active in terms of their overweight the U.S. or they're active in terms of their timing of rebalancing. So there's active decisions even in a, a portfolio made up of primarily passive investment vehicles. So just kind of take a look at where we are in the markets now, not specifically today, but we've had an enormous bull market run for a long time. Uh, lately, we've had a lot of volatility uh, based on the trade wars and, and other concerns. Uh, are stocks in general fairly priced, overpriced, underpriced? Just give me a general sense of where we are in the market cycle right now. Well, in, in terms of the global stock market, after the sell-off, they're actually priced in, in line with their, their average over the past 20 years. The U.S. stock market remains overvalued. But what, what's interesting about this period is this volatility in, in 2018 this is actually normal volatility. I saw a study the other day by Ned Davis Research, and they looked at 63-day market periods. So over, over an average 63 days of market trading, going back to 1970, 13% of those 63, or 13 days of those 63 days, the market moves more than 1%, either up or down. I'm sorry, the average is nine. But this year, it's moved 13 so only 13 over the past 63 days. So it's you know a little more than average, but when you compare that to 2011 or 2008, over a 63-day market period, half the days were moves greater than 1%. So we're just, people are, are a little concerned about the volatility because they're not used to it. In 2017, a typical 63-day three-day period only had three days where the markets moved more than 1%. So we've had much less volatility. Now that we're seeing more volatility, people are, are, are concerned. And then you have you know, the trade talk rhetoric, et cetera. Why do you think it is more volatile now than it has been? We had that period of very low volatility for a long time. What has changed? I, I think sentiments change. I think it just it's hard to say exactly what changed. Investors are made up of humans, and, and sometimes they think everything is going really well. Other times, I think certainly some of the rhetoric in terms of uh, the trade situation is, is causing some concern. But it, there's usually some prevailing narrative that drives markets. And, and at times when that narrative might be changing, volatility tends to pick up. But when, when we look at sort of the fundamentals, the fundamentals are good. The, the economic growth globally continues to be very strong. The leading indicators on the economic front are still suggesting the a risk of a recession is very low. Valuations globally are reasonable. But what, what has changed is the level of fear 
as indicated by investor survey data, is is quite high, as high as it's been since after the presidential election in 2016. So how should people deal with their emotions when it comes to investing? It's very easy to freak out when the market drops a thousand points and it goes up and goes down. And even though there are relatively smaller percentage moves compared to in the past that have been a thousand points, how do you deal with your emotions so that you don't get too enthusiastic when it goes up and get too depressed when it goes down and buy high and sell low, which is easy emotionally to do, but doesn't make you a lot of money. My, My approach is to just check in once a month. So don't don't sit and and look at your statements every day or your account online every day. Just just step back. And that's one of the things that I do in terms of my members is we just look at valuations on a monthly basis. We look at economic trends on a monthly basis and we look at the level of fear and greed. And there's other you know, you can look an individual can go look, for example, market M-A-R-K-I-T. They provide a monthly snapshot of what's called purchasing manager indices. They do press releases. And you can see, and if it's above 50, typically that's been an expansionary period. And that that is highly correlated with what the economy actually does. Because major bear markets usually come during recessions or a lead up to a recession. But as long as the economy continues to appear to be expanding, and you, you don't have to check that daily, you can check that once a month when they do the press release, and you can sort of control that emotion because you're taking an objective view. You're not letting the commentators tell you what to worry about. And as a long-term investor, just checking in once a month to, to see, you know, has something changed that should cause me a major red flag? And I think that allows to control some of that day-to-day emotion. So what would be a red flag when you look once a month if the PMI is dropping, uh, sentiment has changed, what would be enough of a change when you look once a month to make some changes in your portfolio? If I, for example, saw that PMI, and in this case, I'm talking about manufacturing PMI, so the JP Morgan Global Manufacturing PMI or the U.S. Manufacturing PMI, if, that, if it got to below 48, typically, so 50 is sort of kind of the dividing line, but if it got below 48, that would would cause me some concern. Yeah, you can look at, for example, the conference board leading index, which is also published monthly for the U.S. and I believe other countries. If if that seemed to have a major change over six months where most of the components were dropping, that would also be a concern. Valuation, you know, the market is somewhat overvalued right now in the U.S., but valuation alone is not a reason to exit markets. It typically has to be in combination where investors are extremely zealous and, and valuations are extremely high, such as we saw during the internet bubble. But barring that, it, unless the economy turns, which, which an individual investor, I mean, it takes some work, but you can monitor once a month, then that, that's what you look at. Is it general best to be a contrarian? I mean, for example, in 2008, when the market was dropping sharply, the real estate bubble was bursting it looked like we might be coming to the end of the earth. Were you in there buying fully because you thought this is going to turn around and this is a great buying opportunity? No, no. no. So instit- institutionally, we I was buying incrementally. So you, you can't make, it's very hard to turn it on and off. You need to make incremental decisions. So for example, in my institutional portfolios in September 
2008, the latter part, we started moving into emerging markets a little bit. We were three weeks early. We moved into non-investment grade bonds in December a little bit early. But you're never going to get the timing exactly right. So the idea is to be a risk manager and adjust, but you don't want to go completely out or completely in. But there's there's enough that investor individual investors to do to monitor risk to be able to avoid the, the major, major drawdowns. You can't time 10% moves in the stock market. It, it's just too difficult to do. But you can adjust risk, in my opinion, for the moves greater than 20%. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Stein. He is the host of the Money for the Rest of Us website and podcast. Uh, you can find out more at moneyfortherestofus.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there, struggling to keep up with credit card payments, searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt. Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, Visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Has your small business been turned down for a loan by the bank? Is lack of capital hindering your business growth? Small businesses unable to obtain bank financing or tired of merchant cash advances can now get the financing they need. Corporate Lending Solutions provides short and long-term capital, revolving lines of credit, and unsecured business loans. Does your business need help with payables, supplies, or payroll? Corporate Lending Solutions has powerful programs to help. While getting a small business loan can be a long, daunting process, with Corporate Lending Solutions, it's simple and takes only one to three days. Call 800-261-6478 or visit CorporateLendingSolutions.com to learn more. 800-261-6478. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Stein. He is the host of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast. He was an institutional money manager. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. So you're a bit of a student, I guess you might say, of the history of money. Um, so what are the different types and characteristics of money that people may not be aware of? Well, what's, what's interesting about money is we don't differentiate. We assume that money in the bank, at your local credit union, for example, commercial bank, is the same as holding dollar bills. Because when you go to the bank and get that money out, it just seems like money. But what we need to understand about money is that some money is actually a liability. So let's just take cash. Cash is a U.S. dollar is actually a what's really it's not issued by the U.S. government. It's issued by the Federal Reserve. It is a liability of the Federal Reserve. And so it, and it's not it's a fiat currency. So when the Federal Reserve note was first issued, the first U.S. dollar was issued in, in 1914. It was 40% backed by gold, but not anymore since the early 1970s. And so that's a very different animal than, let's say, a commercial bank deposit, which is a, a private obligation of a commercial bank just to you. So which it's a different type of money altogether. And when we compare that to some, so something like gold, that's also a completely different type of money because it's, it's physical, whereas that Federal Reserve notes are physical, but commercial bank deposits are digital. And, and because commercial bank deposits are digital, they, they essentially can be created at will by commercial banks. And so when we come back to the attributes of money, there was an interesting paper that the Bank of International Settlements did, and they, they called it really a taxonomy of money. And so when we look at the various types of money, we want to look at you know, who's the issuer, is it the central bank? Is it a commercial bank? Or is there no issue at all in, in terms of something like cryptocurrency or Bitcoin? Is it electronic or is it physical? Currency is physical. The cash, cryptocurrency is digital. How accessible is it? Is it universally available or is it limited? Your access to commercial bank deposits, it's limited. You can't. You can only wire your money to somebody else during banking hours. You can go to your ATM and get it converted to Federal Reserve notes, i.e. dollars at any time, but you don't have access to that money at any given time. Other attributes of money, is it interest-bearing? The currency is not interest-bearing. Your commercial bank, your deposits at the bank, you know, many of them are interest-bearing. And then a final attribute is, is anonymity. Is it anonymous when you wire to somebody else? funds no there is a complete paper trail but with you can give your currency to somebody else and, and not be tracked you could give gold to somebody else or cryptocurrency so the, these are different attributes of money and and the takeaway is as individuals we should have diversity of our money we talk about diversifying asset classes but we should also diversify our money and one way you do that is you store some cash at your house if the financial system shut down for some reason or banks were closed, you need to have some access to cash outside of going to the ATM. 
The same for having some some gold coins stored. Just just not. I'm not an alarmist, but I just think have recognizing the dif- different attributes of money, having some diversity of our money holdings is important as households. Do you think this whole system you just described works well, or the ways to improve, you know, the different kinds of money and how they interact? I. I generally think the the system works well in in the sense that the how the central bank is coordinating with the U.S. government with versus commercial banks. I think we don't have, for example, the reason why the Federal Reserve was created in in 1914 was because before that there were periodic bank runs, bank panics. The 1907 was a huge bank panic. And because investors or individuals didn't feel like their money was safe at the commercial bank, they wanted that money, particularly from trust banks. And and as a result, that caused massive bank failures. So since 1933, we've had federal deposit insurance to protect against that. We have the Federal Reserve created as a lender of last resort. When there's a run on a bank, they can provide some liquidity and keep that trust in money, because ultimately that's what money is. Money is trust. We trust the central bank will will be sound in keeping the value of the dollar and not keep inflation running too high. We we trust other assets. We trust gold because it's been around for millennia and, and has been a store of value. And we'll see if 10 years from now we still trust Bitcoin, because Bitcoin will have value if people trust it. If the, the people no longer trust Bitcoin, then it'll it'll plummet to zero. So going into the financial crisis of 2007-2008, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury thought they had all the tools they needed, basically going back to the Depression of 33 and uh, FDIC insurance and the, all the laws that had been passed. They basically thought they had the tools to handle the situation, and then they didn't. And Bear Stearns went down and Lehman Brothers, and GM, and Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, and AIG, and and the derivatives, and the whole thing unwound pretty quickly. Uh, Have the laws that have been put into effect since then, the Dodd-Frank and other laws, uh, given them all the tools you think they need for any future crises? I I would like to think so, (laughs) but each (laughs) crisis is different. I mean, clearly our acceptance of what we are comfortable with the Federal Reserve doing and other central banks, i.e. creating money by purchasing treasury securities. I mean, that's what quantitative easing is. They're swapping treasury holdings that that banks hold and they're swapping it for Federal Reserves. And that's basically reserves that commercial banks hold at the Federal Reserve. But I mean, that's that's baby steps compared to what's happening in Japan. We actually have the Japanese central bank going into the stock market and owns upwards of 40% of the exchange traded funds that trade in Japan. Now, I'm not an advocate of that, and I don't know if it was necessarily, if it's, it's necessary, but it certainly shows the power of a central bank and a recognition that money is very different than it was in the 1930s. Money, the vast majority of the money supply in the U.S. is created by banks. And they, we, we sort of have this, this fallacy that, well, if I go to a bank, I'm going to go get a loan and they're going to take somebody's deposit and they're going to give me that loan and they're going to lend it out. That isn't the way banking works. In fact, the Bank of England 
wrote a very direct paper about this a couple of years ago and pointed out that banks actually create the deposits. If I go get a loan from a bank, I'm going to sign a document, and on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet, they're going to put a loan receivable. On the liability side, they're going to just write in a deposit. It's, it's digits. They're not f and so the asset equals the liability. The asset's the receivable. The, the liability is that new deposit, which I'm free to go spend, write a check on it. And, and voila, new money is created. And 90% of our money is created by the banks this way, which is why the Federal Reserve's whole responsibility is to make sure banks don't create too much money by adjusting short-term interest rates and, and hopefully discouraging lending when the economy is running too hot and it's overheated. So there's a kind of a debate of, are we, do we have too much potential inflation or are we actually in a deflationary trend? I mean, the inflationary camp would say Federal Reserve in the United States, Japan and Europe, China have created a huge amount of currency out of thin air, U.S. Federal Reserve, $4 trillion or so. And that's hasn't happened yet, but it's potentially wildly inflationary. The deflationary camp would say they had to do that because without it, the economy would have collapsed and we would have had kind of a deflationary depression. Where do you stand on that kind of spectrum? I think what the, the Federal Reserve did, the quantitative easing, was a placebo. They, they didn't, they, yes, they created money out of thin air and it all is still sitting there on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. It did not flow into the economy. All it did is it got people worried about it and thinking that the Fed, to some extent, was sending money into the stock market, making the stock market go up. That really wasn't happening. Well, all was happening is, is that there were less Treasury bills outstanding, which did put some downward pressure on rates and forced investors potentially to, to be more, take on more risk in their investing, which helped financial assets. But in terms of quantitative easing actually causing inflation, it hasn't happened because the money didn't flow into the economy. What causes inflation is that increased money supply during a period when capacity is constrained. In other words, the ability of the private sector to produce goods and services. If there's too much money and that capacity is, is constrained, that's what causes inflation. And to date, we have not had that, which is why we're eight plus years into the recovery. We, inflation is still very, very low. It's not deflationary, but it's low inflation. And that's because we're, there's still excess capacity in the system. And that capacity is continuing to increase as robotics, automation, and other AI and other productivity enhancements take hold. And global. I mean, it's not just the U.S. Well, right. excess capacity of steel and aluminum plants in China. And there's excess capacity around the world, actually. So you're saying that even though there was a huge amount of money created by the Fed Reserve, that because we still have excess capacity, that it's not been inflationary. Well, I'm saying that the Federal Reserve's money that they created didn't go into the economy. All the money creation that's occurred that's actually in flowing around the economy was, was loans made by banks. So had that happened, had it gone into the economy more, I mean, when, when Obama did the stimulus program where he talked about shovel-ready jobs and creating all these infrastructure projects, which never happened, had that happened, we would have had a lot more inflation is what you're saying. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if $2.5 trillion created by the Federal Reserve was flowing directly into the economy, then yes, there would be inflationary problems.
but we it, it didn't. It was a mirage it, to some extent, and a, a placebo. They they took some treasury bills out of action, which means there was less supply. There did have some impact on rates, but most of the the decline in interest rates with quantitative easing actually happened when it was announced. The actual implementation, oftentimes the interest rates were going up when they're actually buying the bonds. So a lot, of, a lot of what happens in the market is just anticipation and worry and fear, not the actual what the Fed was doing. Because, in fact, what the Fed was doing, the money didn't go into the system. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Stein. He's the host of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast and website, which you can find out more at moneyfortherestofus.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Stein. He is a institutional money manager, former institutional money manager, host of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast and website at moneyfortherestofus.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. 
So the two basic alternative currencies to what we've been talking about, cash and bank deposits, are gold and cryptocurrencies. Let's just talk about gold now. Uh, it's gone up a little bit, but not, not really that much. Considering all the crises in the world and potential war with North Korea and the Middle East war, I mean, had this been 1980, gold would have soared dramatically more as a kind of a safety haven. Why is gold not acting uh, the way it has in, in past crises? No idea. And that's that's the beauty of speculative assets like gold. It, it's worth whatever investors are willing to pay for it. And, and clearly, the demand by investors to hold gold is holding down its price. Now, I, I don't I own about four to five percent of my net worth in gold coins. I and I have it tucked away. I ignore it. I have no view on what the right price should be. I just prefer to have some portion of my net worth and an asset that is separate from the traditional monetary system. And so I think, gold, I mean, gold, obviously, it doesn't yield anything. So when real rates are lower, gold can do better. If as real rates go up, that pushes some downward pressure on gold just as a competing asset. But the, the thing about gold is there's no there's no real industrial use for gold. So you can't really look at major supply demand. It's used for jewelry and it's used for a store of value. And it, it's basically the more fear, fearful investors are, they tend to buy more gold. But that's about, that's about all the clarity I have on it. Would you like uh, doing it as a like exchange-traded fund, Jack, a GLD or gold mining shares, instead of owning physical gold as a more liquid way where you might be able to get some income from it? I I have a small amount in a, a gold trust or gold ETF, but my main reason to own gold is to have something that is separate from the financial system, what I call a pocket of independence. So it's not tied to it. So if if one wants to just speculate that gold's going to go up in the short term, then certainly an ETF makes more sense. But if you want to hold it as a long-term hedge against whatever calamities may or may not take place, then I think gold coins are, are the best way to, to hold gold. So explain to me this calamity. People tell me this all the time. Okay, we've got wars breaking out or a bioterrorism incident or we've lost the power system, you know, some major crisis. And you're sitting there with your gold coins. Are you going to like shave a little bit off as you go to 7-Eleven to buy milk? I mean, how is this going to work even in a calamity? Well, that's just why I also tell people to have a supply of food and water, which we have. And I'm not even a survivalist. I'm just trying to be prudent. So, you know, one thought is own some silver because it's in smaller denominations. Because you're right, owning just gold coin, they're not going to necessarily, well, I guess maybe they'll take it at the grocery store. You're going to buy a ton of groceries, which I get, you could probably then resell to your neighbors if you don't get looted. But no, I mean, that this is... This is a long-term type holding, and there, there are more practical ways to, to manage some type of calamity by having some physical goods, such as food and water, and, and maybe even some silver dimes. So you think that's a good idea, to have some food oh, and water absolutely. put aside? Oh, mm -hmm. absolutely. I, I think diversification goes beyond financial assets. I think owning some monetary diversification, I think owning land makes sense as an inflation hedge things not everything should be tied directly to paper assets i think having physical 
assets is is a prudent strategy. So the ultimate non-physical asset is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Now, some people are saying that the reason gold isn't moving is the money that used to go into gold is going into cryptocurrencies, which has had enormous volatility. It's surged, it's plunged, it's surged, it's plunged lately. What, what is your view of the role of cryptocurrencies in the monetary system going forward from where we are now? I think the best term I have for it, which, which is common out there, is it's a form of digital gold. I think cryptocurrencies, by and large, are, are lousy as a payment mechanism. It does work, but the transaction fees get to be too high, and it's too volatile. I mean, they talk about the, the guy that you know, bought a pizza with Bitcoin five years ago. Well, whatever. That was a $3,000 pizza if you converted it to dollars, given the current price of Bitcoin. So I think that the, the, the thing that I like about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is there's an algorithm backing it that limits the amount of Bitcoin that be created. We have already talked about how banks can create an unlimited money supply through their lending activities. The, the amount of Bitcoin is limited to 21 million, which means it's another reason it, it, it'll never be a great mechanism for exchange because it's inherently deflationary when, to the dollar. If there's a limited amount of Bitcoin that will ever be created, and there's an unlimited supply of dollars that are created, that means the value of Bitcoin will always be going up relative to the dollar if, and it's a big if, investors, hoarders, speculators believe Bitcoin has value, that they trust the algorithm, and they want to hold these digits because that's effectively what it is. It's just one big ledger in the sky saying who holds so many uh, of this particular digit. Now, there may be a limit on the number of Bitcoin, but there's not a limit on the number of cryptocurrencies. There's whatever, 1,500 new ICOs coming public all the time. So there's not a limit on the amount of cryptocurrencies. They're coming out with every conceivable <laughs> description. So isn't Exactly, which is why, but one of, I, I believe things, I mean, there's a lot of things that are coming out that are, are like gold too, right? I mean, there's other precious things. There's art. But at the end of the day, when people think of precious metals, they think of gold, and that's often what they hold, or maybe silver, because they've done. I think the same way for cryptocurrencies. When people talk about owning cryptocurrencies, the first thing they go back to is Bitcoin. It's been around the longest. It's, it has the largest in terms of the, the, its total value, valuation across you know, the price times the number of Bitcoin outstanding. So I think there will always be that. But at the end of the day, I think what's been around the longest has a higher probability of continuing to be around. And so from that aspect, but you don't know. And that's why, again, Bitcoin, one should only in, speculate in Bitcoin assets that they're willing to lose, they lose it all. It could go to zero. Because again, I have no clarity in terms of what Bitcoin will do. I don't is trade it. Is Bitcoin a currency people should own or is it something they should consider that be a speculative, volatile vehicle? No, I think it just, I think they're all speculations that they should own. I, I think there's some advantage of traveling around and having some Bitcoin on your phone in terms mm -hmm. of a, a Bitcoin wallet. I mean, it's a diversifier. It, it, it you never know what's going to happen, and it's just another way to diversify your money holdings. But it should be prudent. It should be, you know, I, I think I have one to two percent of my net worth in cryptocurrencies, and and I'm fine with that. I don't, I'm not trying to 
I think where people get into trouble is they go you know, head over here, heels into a given asset class and put the bulk of the retirement in. A speculation by definition means something where there's some disagreement on whether the return will be positive or negative. We should have most of our assets in investments that have an expected positive return, typically because they have some type of income stream. So I'm not holding you to this, but 10 years from now, is Bitcoin going to be 100,000 or is it going to be zero? Today, I, I would say that the likelihood is it'll be closer to 100,000 than zero based on where we are eight years in that the number of people that hold it, the, you know, the total market caps, roughly 170 billion versus the, whatever the, I think we have two and a half trillion dollars of currency outstanding and trillions of trillions of dollars of assets denominated in dollars. And so, but I don't know, I, I have no clarity on that, but it, it, in my mind, this is in my speculation bucket. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't, I know how much I had and how much I didn't, that <laughs> that was now worthless. What you can afford to lose. I mean, exactly. some, the argument that going up is that the custody situation is getting better and institutions, which really can't get into it yet, will over time come in in billions, if not trillions of dollars uh, into cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And that's going to make it go up super dramatically if you get even a small amount of institutional money. Does that make well, sense? Exactly. Which, was, which would be sort of a bullish case. But we'll just kind of have to wait to see. It comes down to trust. If if something happened that for whatever reason there, there was people just didn't trust it anymore or the government cracked down on it, then, then it's not going to do, do so well. So when you have these uh, hacks like the uh, coin check in, in Japan where they lost $550 million or Mt. Gox, there's, there's been other cases where people have been hacked in Bitcoin. Has that eroded trust or, or not really? Oh, I think it has, which gets back to if you own Bitcoin, don't own it as an exchange. You buy Bitcoin on, at, on an exchange and then transfer it to some type of wallet. Particularly, I mean, for example, I use a, a USB wallet. So the, the secret key is stored on an external device. And so it can't be hacked. And, and so or even a mobile phone app can also be affected for a small amount. The reason why they're getting hacked is because they're they're storing it on an exchange yeah. that gets hacked. So you you don't keep you don't think it's a good idea to keep cryptos on uh, a Gemini or Coinbase or the kind of public exchanges. No, not long term. No, I mean not if you get to the. I mean if it's just something you're you're playing around with. I mean it's fine, but if it gets to be one to two percent of your net worth, then I think it's just like gold coins. You want to keep it off away from the financial system away from where it can be potentially confiscated, stolen, things of that sort. Dramatic stuff. A new world we're in these days. Exactly. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Stein. He is the host of the Money for the Rest of Us website and podcast. He's a former institutional money manager, has a lot of interesting ideas about uh, the future of money. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Looking for an investment option? 
Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102 Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Stein. He's the host of the Money for the Rest of Us website and podcast. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. So we're talking about currency a lot and the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency, but we've got this big spat going on with China now. Is it possible that over time the U.S. dollar will not be the world's reserve currency and it'll switch to either a basket of currencies or the Chinese yuan or something else? I it's possible. I don't think it's probable. Right now, 63% of foreign reserves that that foreign central banks own is in the U.S. dollars. There there is there is a reason why the U.S. is a reserve currency. One very large economy, but it also a very large economy that runs a trade deficit, which means there are dollars flowing out into other countries, and people, central banks. Uh, other investors, they own U.S. dollar assets because the U.S. has the the most dynamic market in the world with private property rights. They have the institutional presence. Right now, only about 1% of Chinese or, or foreign currency reserves are held in the Chinese yuan. And so China recently, for example, there was talk about they, they issued a new futures contract for oil in the, in the yuan. That's a great thing. The, the oil shouldn't only trade in the U.S. dollars. It makes no sense for Chinese companies to be 
buying oil and paying for it in dollars and hedging in dollars. They should be using it in their domestic currency. But that little financial exchange there or that futures and oil, it does not mean that the yuan is going to be the new reserve currency. That takes decades of, of transition. Now, maybe we'll get there, but right now, until China has the institutional framework for it, that they have the trust of the world in terms of the, the currency won't be manipulated, the oil market won't be manipulated, they have access to their markets unfettered within reason, then it's not going to be a a reserve currency and, and you know maybe a basket of currencies but it comes down again it comes down to trust nobody chose the dollar as a reserve currency it, it evolved based on what assets central banks and households and businesses wanted to own and pre previously it had been the british pound right and it had been the roman currency and it had been gold i mean it's it, u.s dollar has not always been the world reserve currency so it well, right. doesn't necessarily have to stay that way. Forever. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And if if the if trust dissipates, or or then and our markets are no longer seen as fair, and then then it, it'll move to something else. I mean, the, Muhammad Alarian had this idea of the cleanest dirty shirt. You know, the dollar is not perfect, but right now it's the cleanest dirty shirt compared to other currencies, and so. People hold dollar assets because of that. And when things go wrong in the world, that's why U.S. Treasury yields fall, because there's a flight to quality to U.S. assets. What is your take on the current spat with China? And are these trade wars going to spiral out of control, or will cooler heads prevail and we'll come to some agreement? What is your sense of what's going to happen here? I hope so. I mean, I, I don't... I, it's. I think this administration is unpredictable, so I don't actually know how it'll turn out. Uh, when the tariffs on steel and aluminum were announced, I frankly didn't know. I didn't know because they had used some national security concern. And so when I looked into it on one of my episodes, I found it probably made some sense for some tariffs on aluminum in that 90% of, of aluminum is imported. And it actually, some of that aluminum needs to be used for national defense. When you looked at steel, 70% of steel is produced in the U.S. There is not a national defense argument for U.S. steel. There was an argument that jobs were being lost in the steel industry. But guess what? Jobs have been lost in the steel industry for decades because the steel industry is incredibly productive and globally competitive. And that's just the way enterprise works. In order to stay ahead, you need to be able to make your product with less workers. That's what capitalism is. That's what happened in the steel market. So applying tariffs because somehow we've lost steel jobs, I think is a poor economic decision. And, and I hope that, that saner heads prevails, prevail, prevail so we don't get into a trade war. So let's take the trade war route. Let's say we get into an outright trade war where we keep imposing more and more tariffs, and not only China, but we're talking about the breakup of NAFTA and battles with Europe. Say we have a worldwide trade war where tariffs and embargoes uh, are imposed all over the place and it's totally out of control. The WTO is powerless. What does that do to the markets? What does that do to the worldwide economy? I, I think it leads to a global recession and, and markets drop, drop significantly. 
you know, if it's just China and the U.S., I mean, one possibility is suddenly our imports, which are still huge from China, the cost of goods start going up. So that potentially leads to higher inflation, higher interest rates, which makes debt servicing more difficult for a highly indebted private sector like we have. That could lead to a recession. But I, I don't see a happy ending for a trade war. Because we have to recognize that there are already dozens of tariffs and other trade actions in steel. We, we do not have free trade. What is different this time, instead of selectively addressing a specific concern, it's these across-the-blanket tariffs. Well, everybody has to pay a tariff now on steel and aluminum, although now they're carving out exceptions. And it, it's this tit-for-tat, well, then we're going to apply these tariffs on on products in predominantly, for example, Republican congressional districts. And so I don't, I don't see a, a good ending to a trade war if it actually escalated. Because eventually it could lead to a, a real war. Because you know, I, I do think there's some aspect that global trade does keep countries from, from doing stupid things. So it sounds like you agree with Trump in certain ways and that Chinese have been overproducing, stealing technology, stealing intellectual property, doing wrong things. Is there a way of getting them to so-called behave? They're part of WTO, short of you know a trade war and tariffs. Yeah, I think I think the trade wars and across the blanket tariffs are extreme. I think there is they are a member of the WTO. I think there's actions that can be taken and have been taken. We there was a tariff placed on steel last December from Vietnam because China was essentially shipping steel to Vietnam, 90% of the value added was made in China, but it was being labeled Vietnamese steel, and the Department of Commerce put tariffs on Vietnam steel, and that was a isolated case. It's the idea that, well, we're going to do this across the board because it's faster that way, and we don't want to use the existing trade mechanisms that are in place, and I think that's unwise. In about two minutes or so we have left, kind of sum up what we've talked about during this hour, and how people can change their view of money to deal with this very volatile environment we're in now. Well, I, I think foremost, become informed. I think listen to shows like yours, you can listen to, to shows like mine, and, and learn how the economy works for real. And, and take politics out of it. I think too much of economic theory is steeped in politics. I, I would rather understand how money works in practice not come in with a preconceived idea. I think that's important. So get the knowledge. And, and second, diversification uh, of monetary sources. So have some financial or pockets of independence. Have some cash at home. Have some gold at home. Have some silver dimes at home. Have some food and water at home. Potentially own some, some land or other hard assets in case inflation. And none of this is alarmist. This is just part of being... A, a diversified investor in the 21st century because we can't just rely on ETFs and mutual funds and hope everything will work out. I think it's important. There's enough risk out there to to be even more diversified, both financial assets as well as monetary assets. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been David Stein. He is the host of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast and website. A lot of interesting material there. He also has a membership site with uh, asset allocation and other advice there as well. So thanks so much for being a great guest on the Money Answer Show, David. 
Great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thanks so much. And we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.